They can be found on pages 890 and 1080 of the Bibles next to your seats, as well as on the screen. This is God's word. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born the king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Ephesians 3, 1 through 12, this is on page 1080. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this, then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and shares together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the workings of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms, according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him and through in him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our God of grace, as we come into this room from the, the, the rain, the water falling, heavily and consistently out of the sky. Truthfully, our our inner lives, as wet as our jackets and clothes might be, our inner lives are parched. And more often than not, we feel like we, like the words of Psalm 63, that we're in a dry and weary land where there is no water. 
and that that is how we feel inside. We may look successful, we may be experiencing things that are the world uh, praises as being successful, as being blessings, and yet inside something's missing. I feel like we're um, dying of thirst. And so I pray that now through words of grace and through the story of grace and through our attention being drawn towards your scriptures that you would that you would bring living water to saturate dry hearts because we're all more of a mess and more dry spiritually than we care to admit and your story tells us that we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever imagined. And can it be that those two things are both true? That they don't cancel each other out, but they coexist. That we're sinful and yet saved. That we're uh, broken and yet dearly loved by you. And that you look into a broken and a dry world and you decide not to wait for us to quench our own thirst, but you, you bring your grace to us. We need it. And we pray that you bring it heavily today. In Jesus' name, amen. I, did, um, I got to officiate at a wedding this week. And... Um, you know, as weddings go, there's a sense of um, any wedding, you just have a, a, especially if you're standing up front and you've been entrusted with talking, there's, there's just quite a mixture of people, you know, the crowd, you just don't even really know anything close to what, where people are coming from in terms of belief. And um, especially when the people who are getting married tell you that this is, just, this is like almost an entirely non-religious crowd, right? So then at least you kind of know that that's where you're at. And, and, and it, when I'm in these situations, um, uh, not only do I not kind of know how things are going to be received or exactly, even if I'm told by the bride and groom kind of exactly what to say and they okay everything, I still don't quite know how it's all going to go because it's just a completely unknown crowd to me and it's a crowd that they don't even know each other. So one of, the, one of the religious things that was in this ceremony was the Lord's Prayer. And, you know, I didn't know until, until I started speaking it and everyone was invited to join along. I didn't know until I said those first few words whether there were, it was just going to be me just charging through myself on the whole thing or whether I'd have at least a little bit of moral support from it. I was, I was very surprised to have a whole bunch of voices come in on a prayer that I guess is still widely known. Yeah, I, you know, you have the, in, in a lot of times in these situations then, people might come up after, me, after the service or after the ceremony and then I'll find out little tidbits, you know, about people. And a lot of times the amount of tidbits I find out have to do very specifically with whether or not there's an open bar at the reception <laughs> afterwards. But everybody's, you know, they've all got different impressions of, of church, church people, of... And, um, and that's just kind of fun to find out. You know, people ask me, once somebody asked me at the wedding what kind of church I'm connected to, 
And I never know where to start even answering that question because where is this person's question coming from? What's their experience of church? What's their framework to even fit an answer within? Um, you know, so what, what do you even say? Um, so I usually just say, you know, it's a group of people that come together and chant a bunch of things, stand up, stand up and down, and then drink the blood of the lamb and then leave. Um, no, I... That's, what do, you, what do you even say? Definitely people have a lot of impressions and you never really know. And you guys know this in your friends if, if religion or faith ever does come up. You, you know, you're just very sensitive to there's all these different impressions out there that, that have been made by the watching world. Um, and good or bad, messages have often been loud and clear coming from church people and the church. So as, as we look at the, the um, concept of epiphany, we're very much dealing with this idea of the watching world getting a message. And not just, and, and so this is a biblical theme. The watching world is getting a message and God is seeing to it that a message gets across. This is a work of God. And it's not just a message coming to religious junkies. This is, this is to the other people in the world. And so you have these, these sort of pagan astrologers from the Far East following a light and coming because God made it happen. And then you have this passage that we're really focusing on right now is from Ephesians chapter 3 where the Apostle Paul is writing to people and he's reminding this, this small upstart church in, uh, in a far-off place, he's writing them a letter and reminding them of his own sense of a call. And so we see very clearly, as you see in verse 8 and 9, that he's part of that same thing of bringing something to the watching world. He says, although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach the, to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. God is ensuring that through a star and through the ministry of the Apostle Paul that the watching world sees something. That's epiphany. And really, epiphany is just a tying into a longer, bigger theme that goes all the way back to Abraham. It's all throughout the scriptures. It goes from Abraham when God makes a covenant with Abraham in those crucial words, often forgotten at the end of it. It goes, you know, you will be a blessing. Um, well, he says, I will bless you, and then I will, all the nations will be blessed through you. A lot of times that part's forgotten. You know, Abraham and, his, and the Israelites, his descendants, you know, we will be blessed by God. No, all the world will be blessed through you. Jesus says at the very um, last interaction with his disciples, he says, you will go and you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, to Samaria. That's beyond their ethnic boundary. And then he says, and to the ends of the earth. There's this theme, it's there all along that God is going to see to it that the message is going to go out. And then today we learn something, I really want to focus on something a little bit shocking about this, if you really take it seriously. It's critical, and I think it can be shocking, in verse 
10, he says, this is what Paul says about this whole project of a message getting out. He says about God, he says, his intent was that now, kind of like in this post-Jesus period of the story, so it's the same period we're in, now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. It gets potentially uncomfortable because every community where there are Christians, where Christians gather, where Christ's people gather, you kind of have to ask the question, if this is what God's doing, if this is sort of a mission statement of what God's doing in this period of the story, then you have to ask the question, well, okay, what is the watching world seeing in us? Because God's intent is that we would make something known, that people would see something in us. Well, what are they seeing? In the book of Acts, which is where we learn of what happens after Jesus ascends, and we see so the first beginning of the same chapter that you and I are in, the post-Jesus chapter, in the book of Acts, one of, some of the coolest, most gripping things that the world saw was um, the early church, you see it in chapter 2 and 4, the early, earliest Jerusalem church was sharing the, their possessions, they were giving to those who had great need, and they were selling off like extra properties and so forth and just kind of laying this money to be more distributed. There's some amazing little quotes like everything, everyone had everything in common. You know, it was just this picture of a different kind of community than our world is used to seeing. And every, you know, if you just kind of keep moving forward on the history of the Christian movement, it seems like every era has something. You get into the the watching world sees things in the church, and, and it's not always uh, it's not always like a real clear, obvious, great message. Sometimes it's confusing. Like in the second century of the church, there are some, some old quotes of people who were writing about the Christian movement, and they're writing about how um, it seems like this is some kind of cannibalistic group because of this, you know, this table of like the body and blood of Christ that they do every time they get together, you know. That sort of creates, so, you know, the watching world looks on, and depending on their frame of reference, they get different messages. But then we move on into the, um, into the third century. I won't go through every century, but just let me just... <laughs> In the third century, there's this plague across the, um, the, uh, the Roman Empire. And Christians got their message across through their care of the sick when it was customary to flee the cities and even flee family members who were sick. And this is what the bishop um, of Alexandria wrote. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. I mean, think about what is the watching world seeing in the church of Christ? And with them departed life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on them themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. And then this, many in nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their steed. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner, and a number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen. And then one more, in the 4th century, 
a great persecution, horrific persecution broke out against Christians. Rodney Stark writes about it like this. Of all the proofs and of all the testimonials, nothing approaches the credibility inherent in martyrdom. How could mere mortals remain defiant after being skinned and covered with salt? How could anyone keep the faith while being slowly roasted on a spit? Such performances seemed virtually supernatural in and of themselves. The pagan onlookers knew full well they could not endure such tribulations, or they would not endure such tribulations for their religion. Why would so many Christians do so? Were they missing something about this strange new faith? It seems like there are moments in the church, in the history of the church. There's historical moments with their geographical place and their cultural place and their historical place where significant impressions are made. I would say every church, every community of faith throughout since Jesus has a moment and has a place in which some kind of impression is being made. And I do think that it's important to think collectively. This isn't necessarily a, a real individualistic message. This is about something happening through the church, as it says in verse 10. And so, City Life Church, there's no other really way to, to think about where this all ends, but in looking at a com community, our community, City Life Church, and maybe it's a good time, right? The beginning of a year, what is the impression the City Life Church gives the watching world. Um, New Testament scholar, one of my favorites, uh, N.T. Wright, he says that what's happening here in verse 10 is one of the New Testament's most powerful statements of the reason for the church's existence. The rulers and authorities must be confronted with God's wisdom in all its rich variety. And this is to happen through the church. Not, we should quickly add, through what the church says, though that is vital as well, rather through what the church is, namely the community of men, I'm sorry, the community in which men, women, and children of every race, color, social, and cultural background come together in glad worship of the one true God. He goes on to say, the rulers and authorities of our world always tend to create societies and social structures in their own flat, boring image, monochrome, uniform, and one-dimensional. I love that. Let me just read that again. So basically he's saying the world around us tends, always tends to create societies and social structures in a flat, boring image, monochrome, uniform, and one-dimensional. Worse, they tend to marginalize or kill people or groups who don't fit, fit their narrow band of acceptability. The church is to be, by the very fact of its existence, a warning to them that their time is up and an announcement to the world that there is a different way to be human. I just want, to, want you to stop and say, wow, like, wow. Wow. <laughs> Isn't it profound, isn't it? Just a, like, a, that's a profound possibility. And, and I also think one of the things we could do go wrong is to say, just like most communities of faith who are gathering this morning, 
could say, look at this and go, well, that's, you know, make some kind of big message like that, some big, impressive, profound message to the world about something like, oh, we're small. Oh, we maybe don't have a lot of resources. We don't have a marketing campaign. Uh, we don't have this. We don't have that. We're just, oh, lowly old us. Every example I just described, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, the second century stuff, the third century stuff, the fourth century stuff, Ephesians, the Ephesians church, all of them felt the same way. All of them, these, these were, none of these were mega churches with ad campaigns, with political influence. By and large, all of those groups, you could look at them, if you could look, go back historically and just look at who they were, they were probably mostly marginalized, they were fearing persecution and separation from family and friends because of their faith. They felt always kind of crouching with their faith and gathering kind of in the dark. It's not about impressive externals. It's about, it's about whatever size you are, whatever, however many resources you think you have, it's about, it's about a quality, really, a gospel quality that can send an announcement and a warning despite any sense of what you have strength-wise behind that message. One, one th- article I read this week, I, every once in a while being that, that City Life was a church plant, that I was, a, I was considered a church planter who moved here to start this church. Every once in a while I love reading articles about other church plants. And so I was reading this one from December about a guy named John Mark DeMaze in Little Rock, Arkansas. And he, so, so he was connected to a big church in a, in a pretty monochrome part of the city and felt called to move, to do a, um, what's it, it's called downward mobility, <laughs> he, to move into the inner city where most people tried to avoid and move the other direction and start a church a new church in that part of the city. And I have a, a couple of quotes from him that I'm going to share in a minute, but I wanted to share this one first. Very simple. He says in this article that I, that I read about him this week, he says, racism is ultimately a spiritual problem. Just that simple quote. And I think from what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 3, I think he would say, yes, Amen. That's exactly what's going on here. When he goes into the specifics of this radical paradigm shift that God through the church and through Jesus now is not just bringing a message to Jewish people who kind of associate themselves with this old story of the scriptures, but it goes out to all. It goes out to Gentiles. That's, that's a key theme in chapter 3 of Ephesians. And it's a it's, it's a paradigm shift uh, for the Christian church, which was primarily a Jewish church. A necessary component of the gospel, of the message of Jesus, is to drive out our cliques. Any, any of those natural sense of sort of banding together around city, around uh, financial comforts and wealth or poverty or social class or political stripes, a necessary component of the gospel is to drive out those cliques. So that as verse 10 is saying, basically the technical nature of the gospel 
and of the church can send a very clear and astonishing message to the world around us. The gospel is a consistent call to include those who you are most likely to view as not belonging. Let's remember, though, because so a lot of times you, people say, yeah, yeah, that's a message, especially today. That's a politically correct message. That's a, that's, that's find broad agreement around in outside of the church. So let's just remember why we in the, in the church of Jesus, we have sort of like a special kind of oomph, a special power to move into that calling. It's because you and I have realized that God has let us in. So if there's like people in our lives that we might just naturally, without even thinking, tend to kind of view as not belonging or just not associated with me or connected with me, we realize that that is the dynamic of our position with respect to God. We have a humility where we say, woe is me, but God has completely embraced and made me belong, even me. And if you're appropriately astonished with that reality, and for some of us, quite frankly, that's the struggle, is to be appropriately astonished by that. If we're appropriately astonished, then we can dish it out to the world around us. We have an impulse coming from inside to dish it out. Almost, there really is, I won't say even almost, there is no other framework of thought that pushes you out from an internal experience of humbly being accepted where you don't belong. Almost every other uh, Every other way that you might come to the idea of, well, we should welcome, well, we should reach across, no other viewpoint completely knocks down every sense of any condescension or being better than. The Christian faith says, I, I am poor. I am completely undeserving. I'm a broken mess. And so there's a community call in the church a call to ask questions, you know, of, of us as a community. What is it about the way that we have been operating that has kept a door closed for people of various groups or types of people in our city that we don't yet see here in this place, in our homes, in our small groups, and in our worship on Sunday? And are you ready for the adventure? Because it's not about a berating kind of um, shame on you guilt message if it's not happening. It's about, well... Are you ready for the adventure of swinging open those doors that have been closed? Let me finish with a few quotes from this guy, uh, John Mark Demaz. He says, I look around the city and I wanted to create a church of diverse people who could walk, work, and worship God as one. The idea was to create a church that reflects the city. And he says, I love this part, he says, that's not political correctness, that's biblical correctness. And then this, he says, this is, in my opinion, the single greatest thing God is going to do in the 21st century. He's going to integrate the church. Because we cannot continue to preach a message of God's love for all people 
and be believed and credible from segregated churches. I thought since we're in this season of um, we're in this season of extending the heart of Jesus to one person at a time, I thought I would read the little prayer card that's available in the back one more time. Here it is. Um, I've read this before, but let this be the closing prayer to this message. To the God who sends his people into the world, we have often been in troubled places and you have met us through someone else. Please bring your love now to others through us. Wake us up to the people you have placed in our lives. They are our neighbors, family, co-workers, classmates, and acquaintances. They are neighbors, or they are residents and refugees, Republicans and Democrats, adults and children, gay and straight, homeowners and homeless, blue-collar and white-collar. Hear us as we begin praying for specific people. Give us eyes to see your activity and surprise us by your power to soften hearts. Give us confidence and conviction to know our minor role. Lead us to love people today in a way that supports their path towards someday knowing you and calling you their God. May this grow our faith. and May it grow the community of City Life Church. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. And everyone says, amen.